Hmm. Everyone's going to be right on time today. Or late. Mm -hmm. Hello, Sean. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hi. 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 <laughs> I wanted to be early this time because last time you guys caught me off guard recording. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it was being recorded when, when I joined. So Mwah, like, no one's going to catch me off guard this time. So you think. Unless That's you're right. already recording. <laughs> recording in progress. Welcome to another episode of AT Banter. Banter, banter. Uh, hey, this is the podcast, of course, where we talk with advocates and members of the disability community to educate and inspire better conversation about disability. Hey, my name is Robin O, and joining me today, Mr. Ryan Flurry. Hey, I'm Ryan Flurry. Hey, that's my gig. Uh, also in the room. Mr. Steve Barkley. Hey, I'm Mr. Steve Barkley. Uh, hmm, okay, I don't like where this is going. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, we are missing somebody. Uh, we are missing the lovely Liz Malone, uh, who is off today. So uh, it is just the three dummies uh, today. Dum, dum, dum. Uh, but I am very excited about tonight's episode. Why am I excited? You might ask me. Why are you uh, excited? Why, why are you excited? Thank uh, you for playing along. Uh, <laughs> I'm very excited because uh, today we are recording part three of our ableism series. Woo! Thank you. Thank you. For, thank you again for playing <laughs> along. Uh, yes, that's right. We are going to be talking all about internalized ableism, which I feel like a lot of people may not really know about or understand or it's a very i feel like it's a very nuanced sort of segment of ableism so i'm really excited to see what the panel has to say and speaking of our panel ryan could you tell the lovely people at home uh who's joining us we are welcoming back to the show sean marcelet from blind beginnings and the limitless podcast hello sean hey <laughs> I'm Sean Marshley. I, I, I knew I didn't like where this is going. Trademark, trademark, copyright. <laughs> and also our expert on the panel, welcoming back to the show, Amy Amanti. Hello, Amy. Hey, it's Amy Amanti. <laughs> I love it. You guys oh, are coming back on, every week. Every on, week. Sweep. Yep. <laughs> Very funny. Everybody's a real comedian tonight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get things started. Who would like to tackle the task of defining what internalized ableism is? Would you like an actual definition, Rob? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Shall I read you the definition that I found for this particular episode? I would love it. Okay. <clears throat> Internalized ableism is when a person with a disability discriminates against themselves or other people with disabilities by holding the view that disability is something to be ashamed of or something to hide or by refusing accessibility or support. A lot to unpack there. 
Mm-hmm. There is a lot to unpack there. All right. Well, what you is just the panel you just described about? my teens, twenties, and uh-huh. halfway through my thirties. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I would submit that that even if we like, I don't know, was able to remove it entirely, we're always going to experience moments of it. Definitely. Right. Cause you're always going to do something where you're like, Oh, you know, if I could see better, I would do this or whatever. Um, and that's, I think part of internalized ableism, how much pressure we put on ourselves to like, you know, for those of us who've acquired disabilities, who we were before, you know, the things we could do before that we can't do now and reframing your mindset possibly maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, I say that all the time yeah. coming from a sighted world to no sight. It's like, Oh, I wish I could still see that. Or I wish I could still do that. Mm-hmm. just part of my vocabulary so yeah and i feel like the, the the tricky part of this too is that there does seem to be a lot of ways that this can manifest because you know especially when you're talking about anything that's internalized where you know your your own emotions your own ways that you see the world are are influencing it there, there's so many variables that it just it can manifest in in multiple different ways I, this happens, uh, you know, this, this can happen internally, but I think part of the nuance of this is what we, what we experience from the outside world. So what media tells you disability is about what family tells you what disability is about, and then what you take on in terms of how that, how that impacts your own self-worth, which I think is an important statement. And so like, for example, my grandmother, my grandmother's 97, she's still kicking, I love the bones of her, mostly deaf, mostly blind, uh, and no longer is able to even walk with her walker. So she ticks every pretty much disability box that exists. But even from her, she says to me things like this. Gosh, you really could have been somebody. If you hadn't have been blind, you could have been somebody. And then she said to me once, this made me laugh and then it made me cry. You could have been the president. And I was like, well, one, we don't have a president, <laughs> but two, um, I still could be, right? Um, and so when you hear those kinds of things from people that are supposed to love you, and she does love me, but she comes from a world where, you know, having a disability is so damaging and it has been so disparaging in her life that she projects that onto my life. And then I have to sit with that and wonder about what I do with that. And that can be a hard, like not everybody can negotiate that. I've come to a place in my life where I can hear this outside like world stimulus and compartmentalize it to some extent, but it does make me think every once in a while, like, goodness, do I wish I could drive. Life would be so much easier if I didn't have to carry an umbrella and a cane and a backpack full of crap um, and all these things. I just would like to be able to drive my car again, please. Uh, And that's a moment of internalized ableism where you start to hate yourself or feel icky about something. Um, and largely it's because of the way that, that, that the world interprets you. I think it's growing, well, for me, growing up in a world that views disability as, you know, definitely less than or, or not as good. Um, that's kind of where it starts. So if you experience ableism all around you, it's not surprising that you're going to internalize it. So my family, you know, they, they didn't even want to tell me that I was going blind. So, cause it was so devastating to them. So of course, when I find out I'm blind, I'm like, this is terrible. I should keep it a secret. I should hide it. I should try to fake being sighted. Um, 
you know, try to fit in and, and be as quote unquote normal as possible. So I think those strategies, like one strategy is educating everybody about disability, right? That's definitely yeah. why I'm so passionate about trying to showcase the capabilities of people who are blind, because if the rest of the world starts to see our capabilities, then maybe, you know, if we can convince everyone else, we can relax ourselves a little bit. That's and breaking think, through that attitudinal barrier, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think for me, it, it, I come from a, from a bit of a different angle because when I lost my sight, you know, my family didn't really, well, like I've mentioned before on the show, I wasn't even living in the same city or province as my family. So when I lost my sight, the CNIB was really my go-to first stop. And then they paired me up with another blind mentor who had a very similar situation, lost sight in a car accident, yada, yada, yada. And so I had a positive influence, a positive role model to kind of model myself and my behaviors after. So I, I totally understand the whole societal um, impressions that are placed upon people with disabilities. And yet, you know, we still see this um, happening today. Rob sent uh, over a link on Twitter about a Victoria's Secret uh, model with Down syndrome and a bit of the tirades that are happening on Twitter. I think sometimes people need to be uncomfortable in order to maybe wake up and see the person for who they are and reach out and find opportunities, find mentors, find ex positive examples to reinforce a person's attitudes. And, you know, Ryan, just what you're saying, like, where did we as society learn that a Victoria's Secret model can't live with Down syndrome? Where did we learn that? Yeah. Uh, because media told us that you had to be a size zero, zero, not even a zero, a zero, zero and a five foot 10 and a whatever right. um, to be able to fit that mold. And then when when somebody comes in, that isn't the convention, we question and we criticize um, why can't that person just be who they are, right? I mean, we, we have a long way to go. And for a sure. part of this for me is, um, you know, it's a different thing when you acquire a disability because there was a, there was a grieving process. There was a before yeah. and an after. And, and oftentimes I too, you know, fall into that trope of, well, this is what I did. You didn't know me when I could do these things. Right. Um, and I've had to refocus my learning because I don't think that I do any service to anybody who acquires a disability or is born with a disability after me by, by framing things like, well, I could drive. And I, you know, uh, that's, you know, I, 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 I'm constantly, I guess what I'm saying is I'm constantly working on reframing that in my own mind so that I'm not projecting those things on anybody else. So that my, I, well, all I'm doing is empowering them. Like you said, Ryan, as a positive role model of somebody who can live a successful life with a disability. Um, that's good for other folks in the disability community. It's also good for folks, our tab friends, temporarily able-bodied. You could join this club at any time, right? So I think it's a I think it's a good message that we need to continue. Um, but it's interesting. Not, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, John. No, go ahead. It's it's interesting that like it seems to me, I mean, I have a degenerative eye condition, so I guess 
I did lose vision, but I was never fully sighted to begin with. So I'm sort of like somewhere in the middle, but the fact that you can draw a line between person before and person after and make a choice about it is one or was one better than the other. Um, I feel like for me, I just always knew I wasn't good enough. Like I wasn't, I didn't live up to what society would say is good. So I think it comes across in everything. Like when I was considering employment, it was, I knew, and we talked about this at camp, like all me and my blind teenage friends talked about how we would have to be better. We'd have to have more education, more volunteer experience, more than the average person in order to be treated equally. We believed that Mm -hmm. that's probably true. (laughs) Right. Um, I feel in friendships, I need to like give more than everyone else because I can't do some of the things like driving. Um, So whether, you know, it's like that's internalized ableism. I do believe that I have to work harder in order to be seen as equal. So in order to combat that, do I just not do more and see what happens, you know, <laughs> is that going like, to work? You're, you're the one who has to pay for the meal in order to get a drive, a ride to the restaurant. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Because that's how you compensate for not being able to do right. or gush with thanks and appreciation for uh-huh. every little thing. When, you know, even like the fact that somebody has to guide me to the washroom during the meal, I, I feel bad about yeah. that sometimes. Like I just feel Like, what am I doing in return? And even though in my mind, I'm thinking it would be no big deal if it was reversed and I had to guide somebody like I'm going there anyway, what's the big deal? But there's still that part of me that's like cringing that I have to ask for this additional thing. What kind of a difference do you think it makes depending on when you somebody first encounters um, ableism and then subsequently internalizes it. So I guess what I mean is that say somebody who sort of was born blind versus losing their sight uh, later on in life, because uh, we know that, you know, especially when you're dealing with, with um, you know, internalized things, um, the formative years when you're a kid can impact you a lot harder than as an adult. You, you just have a different way of, of perceiving that. What are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, Sean, you're the expert in that realm. Yeah, I mean, that's, I hope that this generation, any any kids who are kind of connected with Blind Beginnings, you know, from really young would hear the No Limits philosophy, would meet, you know, competent blind people, like have those and their parents as well would like shift those perceptions and those attitudes right away early on it doesn't it's not going to like negate all the things that are going to happen in the world but i definitely think when when you are born blind initially you don't know you're any different it is from the people in your environment that you learn that you're less than in some way or broken in some way or whatever that messaging is so if families don't see their kids as broken and don't talk to them that way and don't really let anyone else talk to them that way, then maybe that child isn't going to have the same level of internalized ableism as I do, for example. I was just on a a webinar this morning um, with a group called Realize Canada, which is a new group that I, I have stumbled upon. And they did a webinar on, it was called Blackness and Disability. And so the intersection of being 
somebody who's black and somebody who has a disability. And so they were talking a lot about this intersection of internalized ableism and internalized racism. Um, and so it was a reminder to me that while we talk about this in the disability context, there are other groups of diverse people that are experiencing very similar things for lots of reasons, right? Like this is, this is not um, specific to, to our community. Mm -hmm. um, which again is, you know, the constant reminder that it's like, this is just, this is just one angle of the conversation. Um, I don't know what it's like to be a racialized person because I'm not a racialized person, but certainly listening to these folks share their experiences about, you know, I'll just quickly share with you. One of these gentlemen identifies as living with HIV, uh, also a double amputee, also a gay man. So all these different intersections. And he says, you know, when I go to the hospital, they say to me, how did you get HIV? Yeah. And it's like, none of your business, how I got it. Right. But what they're asking, what he said, what they're looking for me is, am I a drug user? Because that's a stigmatization that people in the black community face, whereas not necessarily a stigmatization that all people with disabilities face. And so when you meet these intersections, there are layers of privilege that get stripped out of the conversation. When I go into a hospital um, with all my medical stuff and I say I need a painkiller, they don't look at me like I'm drug seeking, mm -hmm. probably because of my white privilege. Um, and so it was a great reminder to me about privilege and, and these conversations that are so important to continue being had. What about um, this idea of learned helplessness? Because I feel like this is another way that it can sort of manifest um, with people. Well, again, I think probably mate. Well, no, I was going to say more when you're born blind, but maybe not. Um, if the if the general attitude of society is that when you can't see or when you have a disability, you need a lot of help with most things, which I think is what most able temp well, I like the temporary temporarily able bodied people um, think. You know, if you have a disability, you obviously need a lot of help. So then as a child, you get a lot of help and, and people think, oh, I'll just do that for you because it's easier and quicker and, and that tends to happen. And then you kind of grow up believing that you do need a lot of help and to the point where maybe you don't even try things because you've learned now that you need help. And then you have people who are not independent because they don't actually believe they're capable of being independent. So that's pretty severe, I would say, internalized ableism, this belief that you now can't do things because you're blind. And I've seen some extreme examples of that, Sean, where, um, where the learned helplessness turns into, it becomes malicious. Um, and so this, this happened to me where somebody from the disability community phoned me at two in the morning and I, 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 this is my own problem for not silencing my phone, but I have a 97 year old grandmother and you never know when that call is coming. Right. Um, so my phone goes off at two, I answer my phone and this person asks me uh, what kind of pizza they should order. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not. Wow. So I kind of, you know, I don't know. It's two in the morning, blah, 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 blah. I get off the conversation and about 45 minutes later, I get another phone call from the same person. The pizza's arrived, but I can't pay for it. Hmm. Can you, can you pay for it? What? And so the learned helplessness was like, you know, if I cry enough, if I, 
I ask enough, if I beg enough, um, you know, this person also came out to dinner and said, oh, I've had such a hard time. I can't, I can't, blah, blah. and everybody at the table um, often to buy, offered to buy this person dinner and they ordered just about everything on the menu Whoa. and took advantage of, of that generosity. And so I, it's a, it's a real example to me again of, of obviously this person was in a space where people were just doing stuff for them and they found a way of like almost making a career out of it a bit of a con artist but if you make somebody feel sorry for you that is linked to learned helplessness and you can get a lot some people have discovered by doing that um and this person in particular is now blocked from my phone list <laughs> so we'll just say that out loud but mm. i i and this was really early in my my work with people with disabilities and i hadn't recognized that that really existed in a way because also you know there was this bit of almost a white knight syndrome that was happening it was like i was i was this person's go-to for anything they wanted to do they wanted to learn how to make candles they'd phone me and ask me how to do that i'd say i don't know go to your nearest michaels and ask them you know but uh, but they just couldn't do anything for themselves and um and i couldn't be their on-demand go-to person um so you got to set boundaries too right I see that expectation that people will just help uh, in some of the kids I work with too. And it's scary because, you know, people who help them at school, for example, like you've got maybe that enthusiastic classmate who's a do-gooder who wants to be helpful, right? So they always offer to guide the blind student from one class to another or, oh, do you need me to whatever, get that for you or do that for you? And so the the blind student now thinks this is their friend, but they're just like, and thinks it's great. Like this person's helping me all the time. So they obviously really like me and they're my friend, but it might just be that this is sort of like their way of doing some charity for somebody uh -huh. who they see in need. Uh-huh. It makes me nervous. Yeah. And the I, child doesn't see that because they're so used to people helping them all the time that of course they're going to help me. Right. That's it's just the expectation that anybody that helps them is now their friend. And then they turn into this adult that I was just talking, yeah. talking about. Yeah. Right? Um, and as you become an adult, you start to figure out how to manipulate because children, children learn how to manipulate, but it's a, it's a bit different. Um, but as an adult, you, you can figure out how to manipulate somebody into giving you the things that you need. Um, and it feels icky. And it felt to me because I did everything that I could in my early, again, my early interactions with folks with disabilities to try and empower this person. So instead of, for example, instead of finding the information on how to make candles, I said, Google Michaels and go talk to a staff member there and have them explain, you know, take a take a workshop, do a whatever. Um, so I tried to give them the, the, the piece of knowledge that they could take into their lives and expand. Uh, where this person is today and how they interact with the world, I do not know because it was for my own personal health that I had to set that boundary. Um, and that also is not great for that individual because I do know that that individual has whatever language you want to use, but burned many bridges um, with their church, with their, you know, because they were, this was a pattern in their life and that came from somewhere. They learned it somewhere, right? I guess I have to step up and say i'm it I'm was probably, ryan i'm guilty of ryan. that to a certain extent oh, i love pizza every saturday is pizza night so maybe <laughs> was, i might give you a call it was ryan to... ryan wants to make candles that's right but it's, <laughs> it's interesting when it comes to you know tech supporter training because again 
there it's with some people, you know, there could be a learned helplessness. And a lot of times, depending on what the problem is, it's a lot easier to just do it myself than actually give them the resources or show them how to do it. So I can fall into that, right? It's just easier for me to do it for them. Ooh, I definitely have learned helplessness when it comes to tech. <laughs> and I just want to call people and have them fix my problems. So there's my learned helplessness. <laughs> but is that learned helplessness or is that the ultimate example of asking for help when you're out of your depth? Mm. I don't know. That's Maybe interesting. Reframe the thinking, right? Because you're not manipulating. And if somebody does it for you, you've probably learned something. Hmm. And it's well, not your go-to tactic, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't do the whole asking for help easily in other areas, but for some reason with technology, I'm okay with admitting <laughs> that it's not my strength and asking for help. And I'm, but I'm not getting somebody to like save my files every day mm, or yeah. it's, it's sort of the one-off, like, how do I do that command again? Or what, I know there's a thing for this, but I don't remember. I'll just post, ask a question on Facebook and get a quick answer instead of like right. looking it up or, <laughs> so I guess I'm using my resources, but. I think so too. And don't forget that Sean, whether you have a disability or not, tech is a thing that many folks can't wrap their brain around. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like if it was disability specific, then maybe I could see that as more of an internalized ableism thing, but this is like world relatable. Well, a lot of folks can't wrap their head around disabilities, right? Oh, I can't imagine being blind. I can't sure. imagine having to be mm -hmm. in a wheelchair, right? So I just feel like this is some, I don't know, I have a confession or a, it's an, it's a part of internalized ableism that I'm sort of embarrassed to admit, but I think I'm probably not alone. Although I don't know that Amy or Ryan feels this way, but I, when I see people who are blind, not doing things that I know they could be doing, I, I have this like, oh, you're, you're letting down the team. You're, you're like, everyone's going to think I can't do that thing. If this other blind person can't do that thing. Like I sort of have this come on, everyone, let's be our best versions of ourselves for the common good of, you know, raising awareness. And I, I've had to check myself about that. Like, we're all different. We all have different strengths. Not everyone's going to, you know, want to do the things that I do. But I don't know. I, I think that's definitely my internalized ableism. I totally get that. Because sometimes I'm in spaces with folks and I think, oh, goodness, is everybody looking at me? Right. Like, looking at this person. Or if that's the only person with a disability or blind person that they've ever met yeah how does that change their view of the community I mean I do it to myself too so I don't I don't really cook and every time I say that I have to add it's not because I'm blind lots of blind people cook <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just I don't enjoy it and I've never really invested the time in it and it's yeah so but I always have to add that like it's not because I'm blind because I just feel like any you, deficit, people are just, just going to assume. You don't cook doesn't mean you can't cook. Yes, yes, I if like to add that. If you living by yourself in a, you know, and you had to survive, you would oh. figure that out. And I did live yep. by myself and survive. So yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know bagels. Come on, is that, I know is a lot that... of bagels, a lot of cereal, especially if they're frozen and they have little pizza toppings on them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I can scramble an egg. I can make craft dinner you know <laughs> it's interesting though like because sean i look at you a lot of times and listening to limitless and you know you're a paralympian 
you have this attitude that I'm going to show the world that I can be truly limitless. And there are other examples out there in the disability community doing that. So let's just talk about myself for a second. Because I'm an introvert, because I'm lazy, it, am I internalizing my ableism or am I jealous because you're out in the community, you're out and about, you're, you've gone to England, you've gone to the Paralympics. Is there a fine line between being jealous of someone or just internalizing that? Well, interesting you bring that up because I've, I've realized kind of in the last two years, probably since COVID, that my over-functioning is completely around anxiety that I, that I have around this internalized ableism. So this belief that I'm not good enough is what motivates me to push myself so much as a, as a strategy, like as in response to feeling like I'm not good enough. So I'm going to show you, I am going to be better than the average person in order to be seen equally. So I don't know how healthy it is. I feel like you can, you know, you can either, become depressed and, sure. and sort of that learned helplessness, or you can become anxious and over function. And that's been my strategy. So I don't know if it's something to be jealous of, cause I got to tell you it's exhausting. <laughs> it's <not easy>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I just like to be introverted and lie on the couch and do sure. nothing, but I would have so much guilt about that because right. it, then it's like yelling in my head, like you're a lazy blind person. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think yeah. maybe it's about the internal narratives that we tell ourselves. So uh, yeah, I'm jealous that Sean is a Paralympian. Um, it's not something that's going to happen in my lifetime for me. Um, but I, I don't sit around and say, I don't tell myself that I'm not good enough to be a Paralympian. This right. is a choice that I'm making to not put my effort into you know, being a professional rower at my age, um, I have other things that spark joy. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think it's, it's, it's really about analyzing the things that I want, as opposed to the things that I think that I should have, because the world tells me I should have them or the things that I think that I can do. That doesn't mean that I don't come across things and wish that I could do this easier or faster, um, or more efficient. Um, but it does mean that I set up my world in a way where, um, where I can maximize my effectiveness and my efficiency um, so that when I want to be lazy, I can, because I know that the minute I go back to my computer to work on something, it's my computer in my space with the lighting I need and the temperature I need and all of the, all of the pieces that make me thrive in that environment. Um, so, so I can, so I can enjoy myself some Netflix when I mm-hmm. go to bed at night, right? It's like, it's like this, I think that's, that's part of, the, the work-life balance in general. Um, and I, and I've come to a place in my life where as, as much internalized ableism as I have, and probably for me, it's more about, we've talked about this before, the disability hierarchy, which is trying to not look at other people with disabilities in that way. Um, well, even take, take disability out of the equation, you know, yeah. like, like I've got family members who are able-bodied, who are musicians, who have gold and platinum records on their walls. And, you know, I've been jealous or <clears throat> been wanting to be like them all my life or a part of that family, even though I'm, I'm a cousin, I'm not their son. Right. So right. I've, I've struggled with that for decades and am I jealous of my cousin? Damn right. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I just don't know how to get past that, right? So it's not even really disability related. It can be that I'm striving to be, or I, I'd love to be like somebody else, like an able-bodied person, right? I'm curious, Ryan, do you think if you were an able-bodied person that it would make you a better singer? Like, like, oh. what, like, what are the reasons why you don't have a platinum album on your wall? Because I'm it... lazy. <laughs> okay, but that's not an ableism thing. That's right. a human thing. Well, yeah, I guess I'm not driven. I'm, I'm not driven. Maybe lazy is not the right word. I'm not driven. If I was driven, if I had the desire and really started reaching out to people in the industry saying, look, here's a song, blah, 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 blah. Here's a video, blah, blah, blah. You know, how do I get in front of people? Then I could probably be at a better level than I am. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I struggle with that because part of me wants to be there. And the other part of me is like, hell no, I don't want to be there. You know, you said, I, I just really want to be an able-bodied person. And I don't ever feel that. I don't either. I don't feel like I wish I could see. I never wish I could see. I just want people to see me. I want people to see past my blindness. And so I, that's just really interesting to me because I, and I don't know, well, I guess, Amy, if you don't feel that either, it's not about like acquired versus congenital blindness, but yeah, I don't. I don't want to be able to see. I just want people to stop seeing only me as a blind person, yeah. like see the whole picture. Yeah. Right. And that's a different journey for everybody. Right. Again, it's an oversimplification to say that it's easy mm. to come to that realization. But, you know, again, we've, we've had this conversation in these spaces before where it's like, you know, the almighty comes down and says, would you like to see again? And mm -hmm. that wouldn't be my choice. You know, I'm a better person now as a blind person than I was as a sighted person. I was a jerk. I was an ass. I was, I was, an, I was just a bad person when I had sight. My blindness humbled me and gave mm -hmm. me purpose, gave me direction in my life. So if I could get my sight back, there's parts of having sight back I would love to have. I'd love to be able to drive again. Yeah. Um, I'd like mm -hmm. to be able to look at a guitar tab and be able to figure out how to play a song a lot easier than I can now. But I don't want to be the person I was when I right. had sight. So when you say, I, I want to be able to see, it's to be able to do specific things yes. that you used to be able to do. Or just to do things easier. Do things a little easier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes I wish I could read any book. Right. Because <laughs> I loved reading as a kid and, you know, Audible's pretty good and the library's pretty good, but there are books. I came across one recently that was recommended and I can't find it anywhere. Yeah. It's not in a format that I can read. So I definitely have those moments of like frustration at sure availability of things. But and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's a frustration, right? Because like I said, I, I don't want to be the person I was when I had sight. Listen, if I, if I was still a sighted person, I'd have the tip of my finger because I <laughs> cut it off on a mandolin. Not the instrument, but the thing that you cut potatoes with. Ooh. Well, and as a sighted right? person... I know... probably wouldn't have done that. Oh! <laughs> see how close I was to the blade. Ouch. Well, it all not... came off in one foul swoop. It's all good. And never having... You know, if I had never lost my sight, I would have never become a member of the community. I would never have gotten a job at Aroga and spent, you know, 22 years with Steve or whatever it's been now. Some real years with Rob, in this community. You yeah. know, um, you, you almost made... say that it's like it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, there's definitely times where I'll get off a support call. I'm like, 
and and know that I have made a person's day. Yeah. Right? I never would have been in that situation if I still had my sight. So there's no way I, you know, there's no way I'd go back. My blindness has, has made me a better person and has, has made me able to make others' lives better in certain ways. One of the things I think about when it comes to my sight loss is I look at it for me personally, and it's not going to be the same for everybody, is it may be inconvenient, but it's not terminal. I still have a life to live. I still have things I want to do, and I'm going to do them whichever way I can figure out how to do them. And sometimes I just have to be a little creative. I don't know if anybody saw my one of my most recent Facebook posts, but I was reminded of a memory, as Facebook likes to do, of being in Palm Springs a couple of years ago with a good friend of mine. And... Um, we wanted to go on the go-karts. So we went, uh, and of course you have to sign a waiver. Couldn't read the waiver, N you know, walked up with my white cane. They said, no. So the next day her and I went back and I said, just like stand arm to arm with me, walk beside me. And I won't use my white cane and we'll show up. And there was a different person, you know, handing out the waiver and, and, uh, you know, it's so I faked my blindness, which is probably internalized ableism, but I did that to get on a freaking go-kart. <laughs> and then I was able to drift behind her. Now, in all transparency, I would not have done this if there were other people on the track. <laughs> but we went first thing in the morning. It was like 8 a.m. go-karts. Nobody was there. And I followed her all the way around the track. Never saw the dude that put up, you know, two fingers for two laps or one finger for one lap. <laughs> I just followed her around. And then when we got out of the go-kart, I pulled my cane out of my bag and navigated it away. And to the shock of the like 17-year-old who was running the go-karts, right? Um, but I figured out a way to do it. Um, and I felt really proud of myself for doing that. And then I felt a little icky that I had like manipulated some folks. But the truth is, is that I, I was able to do it all along. It's just that the process needed some accommodation. So it wasn't that I couldn't drive the go-kart. Mm -hmm. It was the attitudinal barrier that other folks thought I couldn't do that and didn't give me the chance to experiment. Right. It's a, it's a, a rubber track, right? It's like, you're not going to hit anything, but the other car. And if you're the only two cars in the space, you got all the room you need. So um, I, I, it's just, I, I, I want to, like Sean says, I, I, I want the world to see me as somebody who's capable or bending perceptions or, I don't know, whatever that language is. And that helps me internally feel way better about myself, which I think in the long run is, is good. It soothes my soul. Yeah. I'm thinking about the public's perception. You know, I get most people who've listened to me know <clears throat> I'm pretty frustrated when people grab me mm -hmm. <laughs> in the world. And I think because what happens in that moment is I think they think that I'm helpless. Like they see the white cane and they, they make an assumption that I'm helpless and I need help. And because I've worked my ass off to show how capable I am for anyone who knows me, it's kind of this almost like, how dare you not know how I'm Sean Marcellet. Do you know what I've done? <laughs> and of course they don't because they're strangers, but that makes me want to like kind of grab my arm away abruptly and say, I'm fine. Thank you. It's, you know, like, how dare you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> especially when you're when you're using your cane to, I don't know, either echolocate or find landmarks. And it's like this happens to me, the SkyTrain all the time where you get in these like little nooks mm -hmm. and there's no way out of the little nook. Right. But it's like, oh, once I get in there and I tap, oh, that's the garbage can. OK, I know I have to go like this many steps to the left and I'll find yes. the elevator. And somebody's there thinking, 
oh, they're stuck in this corner. I better go rescue them. Right. And you're like, get away. Yeah. Now I don't know where I am because you pulled me out of my corner. Yeah, totally. totally. Yes. But I mean, but I've also heard stories, you know, of, of things going the other way, the opposite direction where people actually say use a mobility cane when they don't necessarily need to, to just quote, prove. I think more, I think you mean more like if you're partially sighted. That's right. And you can navigate oh. without a cane, but nobody understands that. So like when I was in that situation, if I went into the grocery store and asked for assistance to find my groceries, because I could only see like looking through a toilet paper roll. So it's really hard to like scan the shelves and find what you need. But if you don't have a white cane, people, you know, people are just like, why, what's your problem? Or you ask a bus yeah. driver, what bus is this? And they're like, what are you blind? And you're like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. yeah exactly. Cause it is true that you can go into any <clears throat> local place <clears throat> and uh, buy a white cane without being a card carrying member. Yeah. So there really? is, there is actually somebody that I know um, who I, oh, um, who refers to themselves as visually impaired because they're sensitive to light and then they oh. get into their car and they drive away. What? And that irks the bones of me. Um, and she, she believes if she uses the term visually impaired, it's like, well, I'm not calling myself blind. Oh, wow. I just have a light sensitivity, uh, but she'll go to concerts with a cane. <gasps> she'll, she'll navigate the world with a cane. I thought that was illegal. <laughs> I don't who? know. I don't know, but who's who's, who's the cop that's handed <laughs> out a ticket for that offense? Light, Impersonating light a blind can person can be a legitimate concern. Like you know, a right? place like a concert where they're got got you know strobing lights and flashing and stuff like that. That could that could completely mess with their functional vision. It's, it well, could, but a... does that mean that they have the right to have a cane and you know get priority seating and like because this person's taking advantage of whatever few perks we might get. Uh, you know, pre-boarding on an airplane. It's kind of like somebody using a, a disabled parking pass when they don't need one. I don't know, just so they can like get that. the better parking spot. It kind of feels like that. It's a, there's some ick to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for there's sure. Only, there's only an ick to it because <laughs> I have one, even though I don't drive. There's only an ick to it. If you pull into a parking spot and the person you get out and you're walking with your wife or whatever to the doctor's office or grocery store, and then you see somebody else parked, you know, a little ways down from you and they haul their wheelchair to the car. Then there's a <laughs> yeah. look to it. Right? I was talking but... <laughs> about the cane thing because um, I also have a, a, a an accessible parking permit. And it's not because of my blindness, because actually that doesn't qualify. If you actually know the rules of the spark, it doesn't qualify. Qualifying for that is if you can walk 200 meters or less. And because I have diabetic neuropathy, I can't walk that far. Well, all I had to do was call never paperwork and got one. I know your doctor can sign any paperwork they want well, yeah. to, right? Yeah. That's that's the thing. Okay, so mm. this is my thing, and it's happening right now in this moment. Like, <laughs> yeah. I it drives me crazy that and a lot of people have said to me, "Oh, can you get a, a disabled parking pass?" Yeah. I'm like, "Yeah, I probably can, but I'm not going to ever yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I can just, walk." Yeah. So just so you know, I actually had my accessible parking pass before I was a blind person. I had it in my car when I was driving because uh, of diabetic neuropathy and I couldn't walk long distance to entrances or back and forth. Uh, I'm really happy to hear that that's the criteria actually 
that it's not just a stamp, you're blind, you get one, that it's supposed to be a, because, because that's ableism right there, that there's this assumption that if you're blind, you can't walk more than 200 meters. Like, why not? Our feet aren't blind. Like maybe we don't know which way to go, but we wouldn't be. Why do we need pre-boarding? I don't think we do need (laughs) pre-boarding. So we need to get rid of all the perks. No, 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 no. I like I like the two for one at the Why movies. Why do you need a free transit pass? Because I can't drive. Yeah. So and, and because not all the stops are accessible. Okay. I feel like if I go to the theater, I am still missing part of the experience. Absolutely. So I yeah. should have a discount there. If I go to Disneyland, I am missing a lot of the experience. Sure. So I should have, you know, description and and right. I mean, I don't know why I don't you have don't to. You don't get wait a in discount line. at Disneyland though. No, you don't. But you don't have to wait in line as you know, you get you get the exit pass kind of thing, which honestly, I can wait in line, but I'm not going <laughs> to fight that. That was an amazing perk. And Disneyland's overwhelming. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 And anyway. I take the pre-boarding and it's really only because I don't want to fight with all the people that are trying to get in the plane. At the oh, same I totally time. agree. Absolutely. I usually so, do. Too. Even though I don't necessarily need it. Oh, absolutely. It's I'll nice t- it- to have the option. And I'm playing devil's advocate because I'll take it every time. Yeah. Yeah. I it depends, but I usually will. And and but I don't like that they force me to sit there till everyone gets off the plane. Right. Yes. So oh, that sometimes never happens to me. What are you talking about? Really? Really? They well, if you if you're getting assistance, they will tell you to stay in your seat until yeah. everyone leaves and then you can get off the plane. So if I don't want to do that, then I'll go without the pre-boarding. So that I can leave like everyone else. Cause and I, you know, they've changed that whole thing now with the airlines too. Hey. Um, oh, really? Uh, yeah. With the, uh, the, the one person, one fare program. Okay. I haven't flown for a couple no, no, of years. I, I, well, you know, just as a tangent, I had to go to Calgary to see my 97 year old grandmother um, just over, over the new years. And, um, and I tried to book because, you know, if you, if you need a companion need want, a companion, you can buy a ticket and get the second ticket free. Right. Uh, with with WestJet. Yeah. And I phoned up and they said, oh, just so you know, our policy has changed. You need to go fill out all the paperwork again because it's expired. And I was like, I've been on this program for 10 years. Are you telling me that I no longer have a disability? <laughs> um, but they were, they were, I guess, technically speaking, giving them out like candy. And because of the pandemic, we're losing money. Mm. So they changed that system, right? So there was a time where, you could have that, but if you actually booked without using that program, you know, you can't have one and not the other. Yeah. You couldn't go by yourself. You couldn't go by yourself. Cause that means you can go by yourself all the time. Yes. Right. Yes. And so it got to be tricky. Um, so now I'm not going to renew it because I need to be able to have the ability to fly on my own. Right. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I don't declare to them, uh, until I am in a, in the airport. Right. And it's a, then I mm. ask somebody if I'm by myself to maybe escort me to the gate, yeah. but I don't do it when I book my ticket, then it's not on my file. Right. Then you can get away with that. I don't need whatever. Cause if you can get yourself off the plane, Sean, all you got to do is wait at the, at the, you know, at the top of the gangway for somebody there and just say, can I have an escort to baggage or whatever? Right. I, I will follow people all the way to baggage. Or you follow I mean, people. Yeah. you're just, that's the thing. If you wait till everyone leaves, there's no one to follow. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to go with the people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All sorts of ways of, 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 <laughs> of doing, of, of navigating our world. Mm-hmm. 
But then can you, can you identify your luggage when it comes off? I literally would touch every bag as it came around. And, but that doesn't take very long for someone to say, oh, did you want some help? What color is your bag? Yeah. And as long as you know what color your bag is, (laughs) then they can help you. But yeah. The brightest orange bag I could possibly find. That's smart. And so when it gets close enough to me with my partial, I can make out the orange and then it's, and I can pull it off myself, but everybody mm. around me wants to do that for me. And I really, I'm like, just stay out of my way. So I don't hit you. Yeah. <laughs> I just need the swing radius, please. <laughs> but it's the asking it's, it, it's the, you know, can I assist you with this as opposed to let me do it for you. Mm-hmm. Right. I right. think there, there's a difference there. The oh. As you said, Sean. Yeah. Yeah. That you can't. So it seems to me like the the other really hard part about internalized ableism, and and I've been listening to you guys talk, and and I've even caught all of you sort of almost almost unsure of whether one of your thoughts or feelings was actually internalized ableism. So it seems to me that it, it, this can be really hard for people to sort of unpack because these can be attitudes that that have been baked in since childhood or a lot of people might have attitudes that they don't even realize um is internalized ableism Mm. how do do we sort of deal with that well yeah for a long time i just thought it was like i knew that i was embarrassed to be blind or or that i had shame around it but i didn't know the word internalized ableism. I didn't know. I just thought it was my, my own insecurity. And I I didn't really understand that it, where it came from. And I think as I've learned to figure that all out, like, of course you have internalized ableism. Of course you're embarrassed to be blind because the whole world thinks it's better to be sighted. So if you know that, then of course you're going to have feelings around it. So I actually feel better about myself and those feelings with that understanding. Like it's not actually my fault. I'm not a bad person because I'm embarrassed and I'm not actually embarrassed to be blind. Like as I guess, blanket statement, like I I'm proud of who I am, but that doesn't mean that I don't have those moments when I doubt whether I bring as much to the team as someone cited. So it's still an insecurity. It's underneath everything, but I don't think as, as a human race, we ever get away from that whatever it is from you, for, for, for you personally. Right. And I think Sean, what you've, what you've hit on, if it's the big takeaway is understanding what that means to you. So you can better, maybe, um, better be at peace with some of your thoughts when you understand why you're having those thoughts. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, again, that's like, it's it's, it's like a check-in. Yeah. Okay. I'm experiencing this. I know what this is. Okay. I can move on. Right. Cause I think it's when we stew in those things because we don't have the tools to recognize the why or the how or the, where it came from or why we feel like this that can do the most damage. Mm-hmm. Possibly. Yeah. We're very well put. And, and yeah, and I think I really do feel like you're absolutely right, Amy, uh, that, some of this is just the human condition because you're absolutely mm-hmm. right whether or not you're a, you're you know temporary able-bodied or if you have a disability uh everybody has those 
those thoughts. We all battle those. I guess my thought is that sometimes that must be really difficult to sort of untether those feelings from something that is specifically internalized ableism. It's kind of like trying to separate blindness from who you are. <laughs> it's, it's all it kind exist. of, it's all lumped together. I think um, a lot of my insecurities are related to my blindness. If I was sighted, I'm sure there'd be something else I'd be insecure about, yep. but it is the biggest, most glaring thing that people are going to notice about me right off the bat. The fact that I'm really competitive and that could be annoying. They're not going to know right away until they get to know me. Right. Like <laughs> there's, there's other things that will show up later, but I think people are going to make judgments based on the white cane. And, and so that's, that's the first thing. That's the biggest thing. And so let me pose this to you guys. So how do you see this playing out? Like what's the solution to internalized ableism? Do you feel like a, a, a really large shift in sort of society's attitudes would solve it? Or do you think that it would still sort of exist even, even if we, we managed to do that? How do, you, how do you answer that question, Rob? Because like, what if I ask people of color, you know, what's the solution to racism? Does it ever really disappear is the question. Or as generations change, does it just manifest in a different way? I sure hope that more education, I mean, you it know, hurt. I think, I think that things have evolved. Like when I was a kid, my parents said they never saw people with disabilities walking on the street or going to school with them or, you know, in a workplace. And now I think there's more of an expectation that if you're growing up as somebody who's blind, you can work, you can, you know, you're going to be walking on the street at some point. Like at least people are more used to seeing us around, which is an improvement. I think the expectation that we will be part of society, I mean, that's a low bar, but at least there is that. And that didn't used to exist. So hopefully with more, you know, as you start to see characters on TV, that are blind, just sort of not, not as the hero or the helpless victim, but just as a person in society, then I think society starts to expect to see that maybe somebody that works at their bank is blind or somebody who, you know, works in their kid's school is blind or whatever. So I, I think it will get better. I hope. Well, and I think Sean, you know, because you work with youth and, and families, you've probably seen attitudes change. You know, when they first come to you, they have no idea what their child may be capable of, right? They have no idea of what's what's available to them. Mm -hmm. And in your dealings with them and, and, and the youth, the teens, whoever, you, you see those perceptions shift. You see their eyes open up and the sky becomes the limit. Yeah, it's pretty awesome to kind of watch that shift happen. Uh, it doesn't always happen. There are some, I, I have worked with a few parents who just couldn't, couldn't see past it, sadly, but um, a lot that do. Mm -hmm. And then I think even if, even the most accepting parents, um, at some point the child is going, still going to have some feelings, sure. you know, it's not, it's not like, oh, just it's all on the parents. I think no, they're no, still no. living in a world that unfortunately does 
you know, still like we want to strive for everyone to be cited. And when that's right. not possible, then, you know, you're going to be up against that. But, but yes, I do. I do see the shift and it's very rewarding to see that. Yeah. And so I think it goes back to, you know, what I think Amy was saying. It's, it's that, that human behavior, right? It's that ingrained human nature in us as kids on the playground, you know, if there's a, there's a blind child and a sighted child, the blind child might may start having those feelings, right? Oh, I wish I could see so I could run up the slide and go down like my sighted friends, right? There's, there's all of that. Mm. And that's just part of, you know, has been part of, of the human nature of human behavior. I don't think kids think I wish I could see. I think they think I wish I could run over there and go down the slide and then maybe somebody says hey little kid you want to run with me i'm going to the slide <laughs> like i think that's the yeah i don't know if it's that because if you've never seen i don't think you wish to see i think you just want to be part of things yeah you want to be an interesting interesting conversation to have sometime with with either yeah. uh, a family or, or you know because i have no idea I, like i said i'm coming to this from somebody who was sighted so yeah. It'd be interesting to know, does a child born blind wish they could see? And I'm sure that's different between everybody, but. I think most are just curious about what all the fuss is about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I had a weird situation yesterday. I was at my son's and Cubs and we were at a, a barbecue for the Cubs and Beavers. And, and there's a kid in my son's Cub troop that, uses a wheelchair and our, our friend was, our neighbor friend was there and she was saying to us how she's just so happy that her boys are part of such an inclusive group. And that's all she said, but I, I like the, the takeaway for me was because there's a kid in a wheelchair, it's an inclusive group. <laughs> and it just, yeah. It was one of those moments where I was feeling cringy because I'm thinking just because he's here doesn't mean that this has been working for him or that he's enjoying himself or right. that things are inclusive. Like you're making a lot of assumptions just because he's allowed to be a cub. Mm -hmm. This is an inclusive group. Like that's a pretty low bar. I may, maybe it is. Hopefully it is really inclusive. I don't know, but yeah, it's just like, I, I want to be more than just allowed to be there. I actually want to be right. seen as like an equal and be able to do all the things that everyone and else engage. Can. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's very well put. Totally. Kind of sad. Mm -hmm. But that's still the attitude, right? Yeah. Hmm. Well, we can't have that. We can't end the show on a counter. <laughs> so somebody, we need. Well, we're gonna have a part four. So wait till part four. We'll wrap it all up with a party oh, of some sort. It's like, it's like an Empire Strikes Back ending, where it's like a downer ending, but it's gonna be just like the big. Don't worry, people. Everybody, Ewoks are coming in, in part four. Gonna have Ewoks. It's gonna be great. Jar Jar's gone, but Ewoks are back. <laughs> Love um, Ewoks. Just saying. Once again, we've done it again. We've had a spectacular episode all about ableism, and uh, it's been very interesting. And uh, I don't think we've, we've solved the problem of internalized ableism, but uh, you know what? Maybe some people hearing this help bring it into the, into the public sphere, and uh, you know, we can do something about it. We just keep talking about it. Just mm -hmm. keep talking about it. And that is something that we can do here at AT Banter, and we do it ad nauseum. 
Thanks for disagreeing with me, everybody. <laughs> I nodded. <laughs> I nodded. <laughs> That's like the whole I have a face for radio comment. I nodded. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. Well, does anybody have any final parting thoughts? What are we talking about in episode four, Rob? That's a really good question. Actually, I was going to ask. Uh, well, you. I think Amy and I talked a little bit about that. I think we were going to talk about the disability hierarchy and there was something related oh. to that. Yeah. So stay tuned. That'll be another rip roaring, interesting discussion. Yeah. We just got to yeah. find a date that works the, for everybody. Yeah. They all, they all connect with each other. Are you starting to see the that language and ableism and internalized ableism and performative allyship and all of these things thread through each other. I don't know if I know what the hierarchy is, but I hope I'm at the top. <laughs> <laughs> you'll know it when you hear it, Sean. You'll be like, oh, just like internalized able. And oh, there's a name for that. Oh. Right. That's okay, where good. I fit in. Interesting. Right. I'm intrigued. I know nothing about this. So I'm, I, it sounds like this is going to be a, a, some learning for me too, which I love. Well, listen, Amy and Sean, we want to thank you once again for participating in this roundtable. Love it. Uh, Sean, where can people find the Limitless Podcast and any information about Blind Beginnings? Uh, blindbeginnings.ca and blindbeginnings.ca slash limitless. Or you can find the podcast on all the places that you listen to your podcast. Awesome. And Amy, uh, how about you? Where can people find you? Oh, gosh, uh, that's a very large question, Rob. I also have a podcast. Um, it's called Accessing Art with Amy. It's an AMI original podcast. So you can find that on any podcast platform. Or you can find me on Facebook, where we have lots of, if anybody's still using Facebook um, these days, um, at Amy Amanti. And it's spelled like a man drinking tea. Ah, man, tea. <laughs> so there you go. Easy peasy, friends. Awesome. Okay. Hey, Ryan. Rob. Where can people find us? They can find us at atbanter.com. Hey, they can also drop us an email if they so desire at cowbell at atbanter.com. And if they're so inclined, they could also look us up on social media. We are out there on the Twitter sphere and the Facebook sphere. Or is that a metasphere now? I, yeah, I think, yeah, oh, it's, I meta, think I it's think. soon to be the metasphere. I see yeah. they, oh, I really, no, never mind. I'm not going to go off on that. We'll be here all night. Whole other episode. Shut up. That will about do it for us this week. Thanks, everybody, to, for listening in. Thanks, of course, to Sean and Amy. And we will see everybody next week. This podcast has been brought to you by Canadian Assistive Technology, providing low vision and blindness solutions across Canada. Find us online at www.canastech.com. That's C-A-N-A-S-S-T-E-C-H.com. Or call us toll free at 1-844-795-8324. For all your assistive technology servicing needs, call Chaos Technical Services at 778-847-6840 or find them online at chaostechnicalservices.com. Take.